So uh, don't raise your hand high because you might be with family members. How many of you go, I related to the drama? I related to the drama. <laughs> yeah, you've been there. You've been at a Christmas. Like, I, I kind of felt that when the meltdown occurred that some of you were going, oh, we're right on the edge of this, aren't we? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out the card you received when you came in. It says peace on it. That's not just a blank card for you to have. It's, uh, we want you to do something with it. You also should have something to write with. I hope you got that when you came in as well. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to write down the back of it where you need peace right now. And what I've learned is when I ask that question, where do you need peace in your life right now, almost, almost everybody goes, you know what, I know where that is. It takes only a second or two to think of what it is and to write it down. You don't to, no one's going to see it. We're not going to report it. We're not turning it in. We're not putting it on Facebook. So just go ahead and write it down, maybe just a couple key words. I saw one, one person left theirs, and it said last night, and the word divorce was on it, and I just kind of breaks your heart, right? Because they need peace. Um, they're going through something really hard. So maybe that's you, and maybe it's something completely different for you. All right, so let's talk about this. There's a partnership between peace and Christmas that has been with us since the very beginning. Peace has been one of the promises of Christmas before Christmas even existed. Right, so that very first night, if you go back and look at Scripture, and you turn to Luke chapter 2, you're going to read about these angel, an angel who comes to talk to these shepherds, and then a host of angels, a bunch of angels come, and they're singing to the shepherds. And here's what they sing. They sing, glory to God in the highest heaven, which makes perfect sense to me. And then they keep singing, and they say, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And so what they're doing is they're declaring God's glory, and there's a connection. God's glory, to, he gets glory, we get peace. And that was the night of Jesus' birth. The interesting thing to me is there's another connection six months earlier. Do you remember uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth? And they are going to have a child, and they're too old to have children. She specifically is too old to have children, but, but she gets pregnant. And God told her this was going to happen, and she gets pregnant, and, and Zechariah can't believe it. And once this child is born, um, it's a boy. They name him John. We add a little bit of job description to his name because we call him John the... There, you're almost as good as last night. So John the Baptist, right? And, and so, but at eight days old, he takes him to be circumcised and to be blessed. And at that event, Zechariah, who's a priest, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives a prophecy over his son. It's not just a blessing, it's a prophecy. I just want you to hear what he says about his own son as he's holding him. He says, and you, my little son, John, not yet the Baptist, my little son, will be called the prophet of the, of the Most High. Because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. I mean, the gospel is inside this prophecy. You will tell them how to find salvation to be right with God through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, because of God's love for us, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. By the way, when, when a Jewish person reads this, and I hope you flash this through your mind too, when you read that shadow of death, I hope your mind just goes right to Psalm 23 where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid. I'll have a sense of peace. Right, and that's what he's saying. He says, we are sitting in darkness. We're in the shadow of death. Death is the power that just destroys all of us eventually. And he says, and to guide us to the path of peace. Right, he's saying, 
That's what your job is. You're going to be prepare the way for the one who's going to show us the path of peace. And that was six months before Jesus was born, but now we can go back 700 years to when Isaiah lived. And he was a prophet. So 700 years before Jesus, here's what he wrote. And he was writing about this coming Messiah. He said, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He's going to be a leader. In fact, he's going to be the king of everything. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which might be the most amazing statement ever for, to call a human being Everlasting Father. So you can think about that. But the one we want to focus on today is the last name, Prince of Peace. The one who gives us peace. Right. So today we're going to talk about that. The angel's promise is glory to God and peace to us. And the formula that I'm, I'm going to kind of, you'll hear it in the background of the message, is as we seek to give God glory, we receive peace. It's the source, the ultimate source of our peace. And the question is, well, what kind of peace? And I'm going to talk about three different kinds of peace. And I'm going to talk about them with some sense of authority because I know what it is to have these, this kind of peace, and I know what it's not to not have that kind of peace. I've, I've been blessed with this kind of peace, and I've deprived myself of these kind of pieces as well. So... The first piece is peace with God. And that probably shouldn't be a surprise because that's exactly what the text says. That's why Jesus came, is to help make us right with God. But let me ask you a question before we get that. This is a theological question. Why did God create us? Have you asked that before? I'm not asking why he created you specifically, individually, or what purpose your life has, specific purpose. What's, you know, are you supposed to be a missionary or work at a, a factory or be a doctor? I'm not asking about that. I'm saying, why did God create us, humanity? You know, there was a time when people didn't exist. Why did God create us? And I thought maybe there's some possible answers. So we'll make it a multiple choice thing. So A, was it boredom therapy for God? I mean, if you think about it, was he just, he's, he's eternal. So he's, he's in whatever heaven is for a very long time. Was he just going, oh, okay, let's make him. Was, it, was that the kind of thing, just because he was bored? Okay. Or was it to work the farm? And the reason I put that one up there is because some of you are children of farmers, and you're convinced the only reason your parents had you was to work the farm, right? And, and that's why there's a whole bunch of you. And you know what? We've got to keep going. We need some more kids to work the farm. Um, so is there a cosmic farm that God is going, I just need a bunch of workers for? Was it an accident? You know, who's just on a roll. Okay, let's make heaven and stars, the, the earth, the water, the birds, the fish. And let's make all the animals. And let's make humans. Oh, one too far. I was just on a roll. I should have stopped while I was ahead. You know, but no. And now he's kind of like in deep regret. Why did I create them? Here's one. Is the sadist. Right? Because if you talk to people and about their lives, you go, why did God create us? It just seems like the world is so full of suffering and they start listing off things that have happened to them and we all know that eventually all hope would be drained and we will die and we'll be in the grave. And if that's all there is and God created us, it seems sadistic. It seems like maybe he created us and then he backed up and goes, you know what? I, this is so much fun to watch them suffer. You know, they got a little hope, but the cool thing is they won't have it forever. That hope will be gone someday. And they'll just be facing the grave like everybody else. And the pain and suffering and the arguing and that they do, oh, that is so fun. For, I'm such a sadist. I get joy out of this. Some people actually believe that about God. By the way, that is a very sad conclusion to come to about God. 
Obviously, those four are not my answer, so I'll give you what I think is, well, at least what I think, to enjoy our company. I think God created us for the joy of creating us. And not only for the joy of creating, for the joy of knowing us and loving us and having a relation. I think God is a relationally driven being. And he, and he loves us, and so he created us for that. So the way I put it is we were created to know and love God and each other. And I didn't make that up. That came from Jesus. When we ask him what's the most two important commandments, he said to know and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one is to love each other. He's saying we were created for a relationship with God, and we were created with the ability to have relationships together. And if you think about your life for a moment, I almost promise you that unless you're extremely introverted, like clinically introverted, you're going to look back and you're going to go, the most joyful, peaceful times in my life have involved and come from relationships. That's what makes life worth living. It's, that's why we emphasize love and joy and together. It's why we look forward to the holidays, even though it's going to have a few moments like we saw in the drama. And I'm going to make the argument that real peace and the source of all peace comes, begins with God. And if you don't have a peace with God, that Christ offers, you're missing the most important thing. I know what it is to keep God at a distance. I know what it is not to be at peace with God. By the way, I still argue with God sometimes, but I still have this sense of peace. You argue with people you love, right? It happens. I argue with God sometimes. He says, do this, stop doing that. And I go, I don't want to do that, and I don't want to stop doing this. And he goes, okay, I'll wait. And he wins all the time. Because he's bigger, right? So peace with God is our foundational need. Everything else comes from that. How do you get peace with God? Well, we turn our lives to him, and we go, glory to you, God. Glory to you through me, and his glory gives us peace. The more we seek, the more we follow, the more we know him, the more natural it comes to live inside his peace. Now, Paul wrote, the same kinds of words to us as he explained it. Here's what he said, Romans 5, 1. He said, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. This is why Jesus came. So we could have peace with God, so we could be right with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Jump down to verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, right? Now, this is in the fullness of time Christ came. Okay, so that's Christmas. Christ came. He was born. He entered this world. Right? I'm convinced that there's also a personal level to this verse. When I was utterly helpless, I turned to God, and he came. Not to the world, he came to me. When I knew that I needed a Savior, by the way, who gets saved? It's only people who know they're in over their heads. It's only people who go, I need help, I'm dying, I can't make it on my own. God, I need you. That's when we're utterly helpless. That's when Christ comes. So Christ came at just the right time, to the world, and he died for all of us. And he still comes to us individually. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. That verse feels so out of place in this passage. It's like, Paul, what are you talking about? Well, I think what happened, he's writing this down, and he goes, and Christ, who died for us? And he started thinking about it, and he goes, who does that? Nobody does that. Well, okay, maybe a few people would die for somebody who's especially good, you know, but, but that's such a rare thing. And then he goes on, he goes, that might happen on earth sometimes, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us 
while we were still sinners. We weren't especially good. We were especially bad. We were especially God stay away. We were especially doing life on our own without God's input, without God's direction because we resent it. All of us have done that. The Bible says all of us have turned away from God, got our own direction for our own purpose because we're self-driven people. And we're pleasure seekers. And it's, it's, we think we know more. We think we know what's, what's best for us. We want what we want when we want it. And if you can't own that, I'll own it for you. I want what I want when I want it. That's why God and I still argue about things. Right? He goes on, he says, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the sacrifice, the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since we have, our, our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, while we were still fighting with him, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. What's he saying? We don't have to fear death anymore. We're going to have peace about, about the future. We don't have to worry about being judged by God because there's no condemnation in Christ. Finally, he says, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We're children of God and we're friends of God and it all comes down to a relationship. We are invited into the relationship that we were created for in the very beginning. We lost it. We turned the other way. We did our own thing. And Christ comes and he pays the price and he says, come back to the Father. Come back to what you were made for, this relationship. So why is peace with God, that kind of peace, the foundation to all the other pieces? And I've already given you the answer. It's because it's what we're made for. Without the peace with God, I, nothing in your life is going to make complete sense. And I'm not talking about intellectual. I'm just talking about even experientially. Nothing will fall right. You'll have no place to fall back on. Every other kind of peace is short-lived, comes and goes. But the peace from God is what gives us the promise that will carry us through the very end. So the first kind of peace that I've experienced, and I've not experienced it, is peace with God. I don't want you to miss out on that. And if you're here today, you have your little card, and you wrote on the back of it something about nothing makes sense in my life. I don't understand this God stuff. If that was, you're on the right track. That's the peace you need. Let me talk about another kind of peace. It's peace with others. It's, remember I said we're made for a relationship with God, but also to love one another. And as we saw in the drama, and as we might see in our homes the next couple of days, it doesn't always go smoothly. But God created us to have peace with, with others. Now, I'm going to be really candid about it. No matter what, we aren't always going to have peace with everyone. You know, it's not, it's not like and once you follow Jesus and get this peace of God in your life, and now all human relationships come easily to you. No, we're, we're too dysfunctional for that. And, and we're too diverse for that. And we have problems accepting and, and loving one another. And that's why Jesus, on the night before he died, he turns to his disciples and says, guys, I want you to focus on one commandment. And the commandment is this, love one another. Love one another. He didn't, he didn't just say, hey, don't forget to love God, and don't forget to pray, and don't forget to read your Bible. He said, no, one commandment, love one another when I'm gone. Paul picked up on that. In fact, if you really want to know the truth, the Bible is basically a commentary on love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love one another. That's basically what the whole Bible is all about. So Paul picks up on this loving one another theme in Romans chapter 12, and he puts a little more flesh to it, like how we're we supposed to love each other. So he says this, he says, bless those who persecute you. That's how you love people who persecute you. Bless them. 
Don't curse them. You're going to be tempted, but don't do it. Pray that God will bless them. That's a tough prayer. That's what it means to love them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Do you know that's one of the sick things about humans is we have a hard time doing that. When someone else is happy, they got a big promotion, big raise, and they're celebrating, we like to go, well, why wasn't it me? We get jealous of them. And when someone's weeping about something, we think to ourselves, well, at least it's not me. Right? That's just sick. But there's part of that inside of us. And so Paul says, here's how you love. You learn to be empathetic. You learn to join in other people's happiness, which is such a gift to them. And you learn to join in other people's sorrow, which is an incredible gift to them. And, and, and that's an act of love. Live in harmony with each other. Protect the peace, in other words. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Right? Nobody should be outside of your range of love. And don't think that you know it all. Do you know why Paul wrote that? Because first he says, don't be too proud to join the company of ordinary people, and then don't think you know it all. That second part means because you are an ordinary person too. I'm an ordinary... Don't be afraid to love ordinary people, the company of ordinary people, because we all be ordinary. All of us. Never pay back evil with more evil. That's not going to bring peace. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. That does not mean when you're in an argument, do everything that's honorable and then post all the things you did on Facebook and all the things that they did on Facebook. That is not honorable. You just do it and be quiet about it. You just do it in a way that, that it's above reproach. A way that God would say, you know what? You've done good. And yeah, maybe it didn't work out or maybe it did work out, but you did the honorable thing. And finally, he concludes with, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. This is how we live lives of love, loving each other. He says, do all that you can. And what I get from that verse is even when you do all that you can, you won't have peace with everyone. There's going to be people who don't receive all that you can, all that you give, who continue to be, you, you know what, I'm, I'm loving you. Yeah, well, I don't love you. Your love, I want to get along with you. I don't want to get along with you. I'm, no. In fact, I'm going to do everything I can to hurt you. There are people like that in this world. But Paul says, in this world, you do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. Right? Now, I thought about that a little bit. I thought, well, that's going to require some skills and commitment. So let me review those, kind of what it takes to love other people and, and have peace with people. And um, by the way, there, there's another side of this message. I can't give everything in one message. There are, some of you are in very dysfunctional relationships. There are some boundaries we should have. Right? You do everything you can to live at peace, but you don't do everything you can to get hurt again. Comple- you know, and I'm talking about real hurt here. So, so what skills and commitments? Well, the first commitment and skill is love. Right? And there's times when you're in a relationship with someone, and here's what I've learned about me. My ability to love is dependent on me remembering how much God loves me sometimes. Right? Now, that's not true with my wife. Right? Lori goes, we're together, and I'll just go, I love you. I did not have to go in my mind, okay, I love my wife, but, you know, it's a struggle. And, okay, Jesus, you love me so much, so, okay, Lori, I love you. That's not romantic. Right? <laughs> Lori, I love you because I've reflected on how much God loves me, and it gave me the power to love you. Don't do that. That's not going to set up for a good night. Right? But there are people where you just go, okay, wait a minute. Love is tough right now. And you think about how much God loves you, even while we were still enemies, even when we kept him at a distance. 
and it will inspire you and give you the power to love that other person. And it's similar with forgiveness because that's a skill. In fact, I like to say that every organization, every family, every marriage, every relationship between children and parents, every business, every community, if there's not forgiveness, I promise you you're only time away from a total meltdown. Right? The, the worst churches you can go to is when they don't have forgiveness because everybody fails everybody. Right? And if you're, thinking, if you're here, by the way, and you're not going to forgive me as a pastor as we go forward, you should probably look for a church where they have a perfect pastor. And anybody who goes to this church will tell you it's not me. It's not me. Forgiveness is part of the deal. You have, it, and, and I have to forgive you. And where does the strength come to do that? Well, my ability to forgive is dependent on me remembering how much I've been forgiven. When I stop to think, what has God done for me, how can I hold a grudge against you? How can that not inspire me to find forgiveness? Now, I've got to go through the process, and it's hard sometimes. It's not like, oh, it's done. But that's where the source comes from. My peace with God, the forgiveness of God in my life, empowers me to extend it to other people. Here's another one, humility. I'm going to need humility. Why? Because in this relationship, sometimes I'm going to have to come to you and I'm going to have to say, you know, I'm sorry, I was... I was... I was wrong, right? I was wrong. I should have done that. This last week with one of my brothers, um, and I'll give you a little more information about this in a bit, but things got a little tense. And I was on the phone with him, and I ended the conversation the way... Sometimes my kids have ended it, and I said, fine, I see this is no, going nowhere, and then I hung it up. By the way, phones are so much, dis, they're so dissatisfying now, because when you want to hang up on someone, it's, you push a button. It used to be much better to slam that phone down. <laughs> Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the rest of you are going, yeah, I missed that, you know, that phone thing. Humility, and it, it requires admitting you're wrong. My ability to admit me being wrong and ask forgiveness depends on me being humble, me saying what's true about me even when I don't like what's true about me, me not minimizing my faults and maximizing my strengths to everybody around me, not creating an image but being real and honest. Last one, it's going to require willingness to invest. Have you ever come to somebody and just go, you know what, I'm out of gas, I'm I'm done, I, I can't invest in you anymore. And sometimes that's a healthy decision. And this, this is where you need discernment and wisdom. But sometimes it's us just quitting early. And we have to figure that out. But there's a willingness to invest. And I will say my ability to invest in others is dependent on me remembering how much God has invested in me. When I become unwilling to invest, I'm basically becoming North and South Korea. Right? Because some people like to go, well, you can have peace with somebody that you're not, or, you know, you just go to your separate corners and you don't have conflict. Right? It's the, it's the DMZ. It's, there's a zone between those two countries where nobody goes and there's no military action. And they go, hey, we've got peace between them. They've got nothing between them except some land as a barrier. Right? But they're not getting along. They don't have unity. They don't have, they don't have love. They have north and south. Right? It's, we had that in our country. North and south. We didn't have a demilitarized zone. We should have. A lot of people died. But it's not peace. The absence of conflict doesn't make peace. And you know this. So if you're married and you only have the absence of conflict, do you know what you have? A roommate, a housemate. 
You don't have a husband or a wife. You're just living in the same house together and you're settling for that and you're calling it a marriage. It can be better. And God is calling us to more. So where do we find the strength to love, to forgive, to find our humility and to continue to invest? And I think the answer is it's in the peace of God. As we seek Him first, we get peace and we get love and we get forgiveness and it can overflow to the relationships around us. We're not, none of us are perfect at it. But that's where it comes from. That's where peace gets multiplied. Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. This is the last night of his life. Love each other. And then look what he says. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. You know what he's saying? When you're feeling short on love, remember how much I loved you. Remember how I loved you. And you will find strength there to give love to each other. That will be the source of of it. Keep that in mind. Reflect on it. When you remember my death, remember my great love. Remember my great forgiveness. So we have peace with God. We have peace with others. By the way, I know what it is to have peace with others. And you know this. I know what it is not to have peace with others. I've lost weight sometimes. It's not a good diet plan because we didn't have peace in a relationship somewhere in my life. And it just ate me alive. It consumes me because peace is so much better than conflict. Peace is so much better than being in turmoil. So there's peace with God peace with others. And the last one is there's an internal peace, right? It's peace in me. There's a sense of peace. If I talk to you privately and I said, how are you doing? You might say to me, you know what, Doug? This is the best season of my life. I have just this internal, this, I'm so peaceful. I'm so secure right now. Or you might say the opposite. I'm just so full of angst that, it, that it's there. What's peace look like inside of us? Well, it's wholeness. It's confident calmness. And it's emotional health. You know, it's interesting that if you go to Israel with me, you're going to meet people in Israel in the Middle East, and they won't say, hi, how's it going? They'll say, shalom. And shalom means peace, but it's not like the, the hippie peace. It's not that. It's a peace that is, peace be with you, peace be inside of you, peace emanate from your life. It's a greeting that, that is, I don't know if we have English words to capture it, it's it's the sense of wellness and richness in God, and they say shalom to you. Now, uh, of course, it becomes, eh, sha, <laughs> shalom. Like we go, hi, hello, kind of thing. But, but in its richest meaning, it's peace be in you, peace be with you. May you know the peace of God in your life. Now, let me ask you a quick question. What would you say the opposite of inner peace is? If you don't have inner peace, what are you probably doing? I'll give you a face to go with it. Emojis help you this generation. What would it be? Chaos, Chaos angst, Ch yep, turmoil. How about worry? Scared. scared, yep. So all those things. I'm going to go with worry for just a few moments because I think that's the one that comes out in a lot of people's lives is I don't have peace. I'm worried about this. I have angst over something. I'm in turmoil about. Let me make a positive statement about worry first. Some of you are worriers and you feel like you're picked on all the time, so let me make a case for you. Um, the case for worrying is this. I can tell you that 90% of the things I worry about never happen. So it works. <laughs> okay. What's the worst thing you could say to a worrier? Don't worry. Right? It's kind of like, you know, why waste your breath? And, and all they do is get frustrated. Don't worry, you say to them. And it, it doesn't help the situation and they don't do it. Here's our problem. That's exactly what Jesus said. 
You know, the worst thing you'd say to a worrier is don't worry. We're, we got a problem because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said don't worry. He was with the disciples and other followers, Matthew chapter 6, and he says, so don't worry about these things. And he's talking about a lot of things. You can read what's ahead of it. Worry about these things saying, what will we eat? Right? What will we drink? What will we wear? In other words, material possessions and food, the things you need to survive. Right? He goes, don't, don't worry about those things. These things dominate the thoughts. Don't you love that word, dominate? It means these are the most powerful thoughts some people have. This is what consumes them. And, and it's not about what they'll eat and drink and wear so much, probably in our culture, some people, yes. But for a lot of people, it's, do I have enough? Can I get more? What, when's my next thing, my next thing, my next thing, right? These pieces dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Right? So some people go, so all we have to do is trust God. We can just go to the mailbox and it'll be a magic check in the mailbox for us. Or a new car will be delivered to us because we follow God. Is that what you're saying, Doug? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'll explain it just a little bit more. Let's see what Jesus said next. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. By the way, that means glory to God. That's the same. Let's, let's seek God's glory. Let's seek the kingdom of God. Let's seek his reign. The kingdom of God is this. It's our hearts. His kingdom in us. His reign in us. That's the... The kingdom of God is not geography. It's the spirit and the hearts and the souls of people. It's, God, I'm following you, and your kingdom is in me, and I want you to reign and lead me. You are my king. So seek the kingdom of God. It starts inside of us, and live righteously according to his wisdom, and he will give you everything you need. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything. Another guy, don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about anything. Someone last night yelled, be happy. <laughs> don't worry <laughs> about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And he's saying the exact same thing Jesus said, which is trust your Heavenly Father. Lay it down with Him. Pray it. If you're worrying about it, pray about it, and then let it, let it go. Tell God what you need, and thank Him for all He's done. Remember what He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Right? Some, some versions of your Bible say, a peace that passes all understanding. You heard that phrase before? Right? And that's close to King James. Um, that kind of peace. Inexplicable peace. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds. You'll have shalom as you live in Christ Jesus. It'll be in you and through you. as you, It'll come from your peace with God and it will extend to your peace with others and it will it will finally rest in your heart and your life so that you have a sense of peace and confidence in God. Let me talk about anxiety and worry for a moment because they're different. And I think we misunderstand them. Sometimes we just swap them and we feel bad about it. Someone, I read a, a pastor this week, I read about, said, worrying is a sin. So if you're a worrier, I'll just tell you, I disagree. I think it can be, but I don't think all worry is, is sinful. I think God goes, can I coach you up? There's a better way to live. I don't think he's going, stop sinning. You're worrying. You're such a sinner, right? So there's difference of tone. So anxiety, what is anxiety? Anxiety is a visitor who comes when a threat is perceived. What does that mean? It means if you're walking down the street at night and a car, as you're walking down the sidewalk, a car pulls up and is like just behind you and is driving very slow, your walking speed, you're going to feel your spidey senses tingling in the back of your neck, right? Your hairs are going to stand up, and you're going to go, 
whoa, 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 and your heart's going to start to pound, that's called anxiety. And it is your friend in that situation, right? It is a visitor. When the car pulls off and goes away, or if you see it's your Uncle Bob, right, and he's just kind of scaring you, you're going to, okay, and the anxiety goes away, right? It's a friend who comes when a threat is there. Now, here's the thing about anxiety. We all have it. Everyone owns shares of anxiety, but not everyone owns, owns equal shares, right? So there are some of us who our spidey senses just go off all the time. And inappropriately, they, they fire off all the time. Our heart starts to beat too fast. It's called an anxiety disorder, right? And some of us have that. My, my cousin has it. Let me just tell you about my cousin for a moment. He's a doctor. He runs, he's administration now, he runs 10 hospitals in the Toronto area. And he would be the first one to tell you this, so I'm not speaking out of tune, turn. He would say, I'm on medication for my anxiety because something's wrong with me. My anxiety level is so high over things inappropriately. It is not my friend. And it turns into this compulsive anxiety that, that can destroy him. He's incredibly successful and smart, but he's got anxiety, right? So he's like, a little bit, it helps him, right? Now, worry is different. So anxiety is a visitor who comes when a threat is perceived. That's healthy, that's good. Worry is when anxiety gets its own room, runs the house, and stops working for you. It starts to dominate your thoughts, and what if, and what if, and what if, and I'm scared and I'm afraid, and you become paralyzed by it, and your heart is always pounding, and you're living in constant state of, of worry. And that's not healthy. And that's what God says, oh, I want you to have my peace. I don't want you to be dominated by worry. Now, I've had anxiety, and I've had worry, and I've had a peace that passes understanding. So let me tell you two, two different times in my life for stories. So the first one, 27 years ago, um, well, 28 years ago, Lori was pregnant with Molly. We went in for an ultrasound, and right away, the, the technician who was doing the ultrasound of this unborn child of mine um, and Lori's gets quiet. And I heard Darth Vader music in the background. I don't know. They weren't playing it, but I heard it, right, this ominous sound. And it turns out they diagnosed that Molly was, had a tumor underneath her neck and in her face, and it was getting bigger and bigger. And when she was born, it was as large as her head. So when she was born, we had a cesarean section. It was scheduled an appointment because it was, it was at St. Mary's. There were 17 physicians in the room, right? Nobody's born at St. Mary's anymore, right? Not that I know of. But Molly was born there because they needed a surgical ward lar- large enough to hold all these people. And so the day came. It was uh, June 12th. And we were ready to go, and then the phone rang at home, and it turned out that they had another lady who was having a baby. She was having conjoined twins. So they needed to be born and separated. So they delayed us a day, right? So someone calls and says to Lori, how can I pray for you? And she said, pray that I'll have peace. Pray that I'll have peace. I wasn't involved in that conversation, and I did not ask for peace. So the next day, the surgeons moved to Saturday, we go in for this procedure, and we're in the waiting room early in the morning, and Lori is as calm as I've ever seen her. And her parents are amazed, we're all amazed. Everybody's going, Lori, how can you be so calm? She goes, I don't know. I just have this incredible peace. And they said, where's Doug? And she said, he's in the bathroom throwing up because he's a man of God. <laughs> <laughs> He's just bypassed me, you know. But it was such a beautiful thing, right? And, and then six days ago, I know what it is to have anxiety again. I mean, 
this is just the most recent example. My dad's 87 years old. He's in Canada. He's walking, and he falls, and he falls face forward. And he does a face plant, and he dislocates his shoulder. His wife can't help him. They end up getting him to the hospital by calling him. They go to the emergency room. They're there at 2 o'clock, and they don't get out until 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. in the morning the next day, right? And so there's this, and they sent him home, and he wasn't coherent, and he wasn't, uh, there was just lots of things. They should never have sent him home. She couldn't take care of him. So a day later, he's back in the hospital, and now he's got cardiac problems. He's got an infection. He's got a kidney that's not doing well. I mean, and my problem is, I'm, on, I'm here. I don't find out for two days. By the way, when I get frustrated like that, that my men have a deal. They don't separate emotions well. We just go straight to anger, right? So we're frustrated, but, oh, I'm mad, right? Because I'm actually frustrated, but I'm angry because I'm not getting the information that I, that I want. And, my, and I call my brother up, and this is where our attention came in because I said, Derek, you're 40 minutes away. You need to go over and find out what's going on. He goes, oh, I'm not going to invade their space, right? No, Canadians are very polite, Americans are assertive and aggressive. I'm an American, he's a Canadian. So we've got this little deal going, and I'm going, okay, and then I hang up, <laughs> right? And, and we worked it out. We're okay because guess what? I have the peace of God, and I need to extend it to my brother. I need to say I'm sorry I was wrong. I was wrong to hang up on you. If you thought I was frustrated, you're right. And then let me tell you what I, want, what I think. And he doesn't like a little brother, he's the oldest, telling him what to do. It's very irritating to older brothers. So I understand the younger brother's side, and believe me, you firstborns, you're a pain in the neck. <laughs> you think you're our fathers. Stop it. All right? But all that's coming out, and we don't know with that. I mean, right now, I don't know. Is this the beginning of the end, the middle of the end, or the end of the end? I know it's not the beginning of the middle. He's 87. I just don't know how it's all going to go. And so there's this anxiety, Right? That's normal and good. In fact, that anxiety makes me go, I got to pray. That anxiety makes me think I need to take action. Right? Worrying is if I just can't do anything and get locked down. Sorry, I can't teach today. Something happened in my life and I'm paralyzed by it. That would be the worry part. So those, I just want to kind of flesh it out and separate it for you. I got through that without crying today. That's pretty good. All right. So hard times are a given. Right? We live in this world. Stuff happens. Did you know that Christians don't live any longer than non-Christians? I mean, other than maybe we eat a little better and drink a little less. Right? Smoke a little less. So some of those lifestyle choices to help us to live a little longer, but, but it's not because God goes, oh, you follow me, you get, to, you get to live longer. Right? Do you know that we don't wear better clothing or eat better food? Right? In fact, but, but the Bible says he knows what you need to eat and drink and don't worry about what you're going to wear God will just give you those things, but yet we don't get better. So what is up with this? Because I know Christians, you know, have suffered and they're poor and bad things happen in their lives and some Christians get persecuted and die. In fact, all the disciples, the people Jesus said these things, don't worry about it, God knows your needs. All of them died violent deaths except for one because they followed Christ. So what's the promise? What good is this, God, that all these hard times are going to come? And here it is. As we give glory to God, he gives peace to us. And we want to say, no, long life and lots of things and win the lottery, God. That's what we want. And that's not it. When we give glory to God, we say, God, my life is about glorifying you. He says, thank you. 
Now, don't worry about your life. Plan, live, be smart, be wise, obey me, love me, put me first, and here's what I promise you. I will do what you say you want to happen. I will glorify myself through you. So the promise for clothing is I will always have enough clothes for me to glorify God. I will always have enough to eat for the, how God wants me to live and glorify. I will have enough things from God to do what he wants me to do and live the life he wants me to live. And I will die on the day that God calls me home. And whether it's tomorrow or when I'm 87, right? It doesn't matter because I will fulfill the glory to God part of my life and then I get to live in that glory with him. Right? And that doesn't mean I'm going to be singing on a cloud like an angel. That sounds boring to me. The same God who made this wonderful world, all the best parts of it, is the one who has heaven, so expect adventure. Expect it to be better than you picture it because we don't have a very good picture of it. Let me tell you how Jesus concluded his speech that night with the disciples. He said something very similar to this. I'm leaving you with a gift. Here's your gift. I'm going away. Here's your gift. Peace. Peace of mind. Peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. You can go chase all that stuff. You'll never get full and you'll never find peace. So don't be troubled and don't be afraid. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. So look at your card for a moment. What would it mean to take that what you wrote in the card, that thing that could take away your peace, that threatens your peace, what do you need to do next? And for some of you, you know what it is. You just go, I got I to reflect more on who God is and what he's done. For some of us, it's I'm missing the peace of God that's the foundation to all peace. And I need to turn to God and say, God, I want to glorify you. I want glory to God. I want a relationship with you. I want to be right with you. I want, Jesus, would you be the forgiver of my sin? Would you, my life from now on is going to be about following you. That might be you. That's the peace of God you need. For others of us, there's some relationship that we need to say, God, i got to be humble enough and committed enough and loving enough to figure out what my next step is with you. And for some of us, it's, we're just riddled with worry and angst. God, I need, I need to trust. And I need to know that you're going to provide everything I need to be the exact person I need to be and to glorify you the way you've called me to. Let's pray. God, this Christmas... My prayer is so short and so simple. Would you give us peace? Would you teach us how to get it, own it? It's part of our inheritance from you. We want to be well in our souls. We want glory to you. And we want the peace that you've promised to us. Help us embrace that. In Christ's name, amen.